0: If you're a pilot, there is one thing you never want to experience, and that is what's called spatial disorientation. And spatial disorientation occurs when you're flying and you're kind of looking out your window, and all of a sudden you enter into a cloud or some dark cloud or you start flying at night, and you literally lose your points of reference, and you can't tell what's up or down. You may feel like, you know, I think I'm flying straight and doing what I'm supposed to be doing, when in actuality... You may be actually in a curve, or worse yet you 're in a descent, but of course if you if you're experiencing spatial uh, disorientation, you don't know that and that is why the only way a pilot can overcome spatial disorientation is if they learn to trust their instruments. The gauges and the instruments that are on that plane. If you must learn to absolutely trust them and not go with what your gut is telling you, because if you go with like, I'm not sure the instrument's right, but I feel like I should do this, you are going to experience disaster. And that is why when uh, flight instructors are working with pilots and they're training them, they keep coming back to the mantra, trust your instruments, trust your instruments. And what I've heard and read, it is really hard to learn how to just trust your instruments. And yet, with a lot of practice where you're like, you know what, I'm going with what I see with these gauges, it can become almost second nature. But I want you to know that if you are experiencing spatial uh, disorientation, this can set in pretty quickly. There was a study done by the University of Illinois, and they took all these uh, pilots that were under training, and they had them just... Flying in these flight simulators, not knowing how to use the instruments. And when they, it, they found out that it took about three minutes for them to experience this uh, spatial disorientation, and what would happen is they're, they're in that flight simulator, they would just go careening into terrain, or they would begin to experience what's called these graveyard spirals, and the plane would just go oscillating back and forth, and it would literally overwhelm its structure And the plane would literally break apart. And I tell you this because um, learning to fly by your instruments is a lot like learning to follow God's wisdom in life. It is one of the driving themes of the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, the whole second half of the book is devoted to wisdom. In fact, you'll find that word wisdom used about 30 different times in this from chapter 7 through 12 because You and I have to learn to not trust our feelings, but to trust God and the wisdom he provides. It's critical. And that's what we're going to see in chapter seven, verses 15 and following. There is so much writing on what you do with these verses, whether or not you're going to trust God as instruments or you're going to go it on your own. But I want you to know that your perceptions in life are going to be unreliable, especially When you go into a cloud or it gets dark in your life, I mean, just like the pilot, if they can't see the horizon and they can't see the terrain, they start experiencing spatial disorientation. There are times in our life, and you might be going through one right now, and you're not sure what is up and what end is down. You don't know if you're careening toward the earth in a downward spiral. You're not exactly sure what's going on. Let me tell you, learn to trust God. The instruments that God has given us fly by the instruments of God's wisdom. Now, there are multiple words for the word Hebrew uh, uh, wisdom in Hebrew, but one of those is the word hokmah. It's used over 300 times in the Old Testament, and it speaks of having a skill. And it's used it's used in a wide variety of context. For instance, someone who could take raw materials and form and fashion something that is constructive, useful and beautiful like a woodworker or a carpenter, it was called Hokma. They had skill. Or someone who can take chaotic circumstances, and there's a lot of unclarity, and actually see a path forward and to execute that path. That is a skill. It has the idea of skill for living. Like even if you're in a storm, and to be able to kind of navigate your way through that storm, it all took skill. And the ultimate expression of Hokma, wisdom, wisdom, is God all you have to do is open up your Bible and look at the very first page. And in Genesis chapter one, verse two, you see the earth is formless and void. It's just chaotic. And God speaks. He exercises wisdom and he brings forth uh, awesome beauty, complexity in the earth and the universe. It's an expression of skill and wisdom and so that's what you and I need. We need skill for living. And I'll tell you, it is critically important. And you might be asking the question, why is flying by the instruments of God's wisdom so important to life? Well, these verses are going to tell you why it is so important. When you look at chapter 7, beginning in verse 15, 15 through 18 shows us that God's wisdom guides our hearts. Let's take a look here. Look at verse 15. Solomon It's almost like we are just opening up his journal again. He says, I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. And there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. And really, verse 15 is the exact opposite of what we would expect. We think that, hey, you you walk with God, you live a righteous life, you're pleasing to God. You should have a long, fulfilled life. Everything should go smooth. You shouldn't have a whole lot of trials. And in fact, he says, you know what? I've observed the exact opposite. Righteous people, and they die young. And they may even die horrible deaths. And then you think like, well, if you're a wicked man, you mean you're, just, you're just antagonistic toward God. You, could just, you despise Him. The only time you reference God is when you're cursing. You'd think like, you know, God is going to deal with them and bring difficulties to their life and bring them to their knees so that they come to realize that there is one true God. And yet he says, you know what? I have witnessed that wicked people seem to have a prolonged life. And he says, that doesn't make any sense to me. And it doesn't. I mean, just think of uh, just even events that have taken place in our own nation. Like that shooting at that Kentucky school. Why in the world did that have to happen to those kids? Look at some of the tragedies. Young people dying way too young. Good people. Righteous people. And they seemingly perish. What's up with that? On the other hand, you got some folks that are just blatantly wicked. And uh, they seem to just go along just fine. In fact, you got some wicked folks that will even kill somebody. And they go, like, we can't find them. And it seems like they got away with it. Or when we do catch them, by the time I work through our legal system, like, well, OK, you know, like life in prison. But you got parole. You could be out here in 15 years and stuff like that. I'm like, what's what's up with that? And Solomon is wrestling with that. And I want you to know God's ways are sometimes very mysterious and it can be very unsettling to you. And it is so unsettling to Solomon that what he does is he warns of two significant errors that you want to avoid. Legalism and licentiousness. Verses 16 and 17. If the word legalism is kind of a a new word for you, it has the idea that relationship with God can be reduced to rules, rituals, and routines. That you just can kind of regulate relationship with God. And I want you to know, God's relationship with God is not mechanical. It's relational. But when life seems to be spinning out of control... Some people are like, man, I'm going to try to put all these parameters and these rules, and I'm going to try to make life so tight that I feel like I'm in control of it. That's what you find in verse 17. That's why he writes, do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? He says, don't be literally righteous in your own eyes. It'll actually ruin you. To be, if you want a biblical picture of what this looks like, let me give you the word Pharisee. You saw that, like, these are, this is one of the major issues that Jesus confronted uh, in Israel. Is that people had reduced relationship with God down to a bunch of rules and regulations and rituals. And a lot of them were man-made. And Jesus said, you have completely missed it. And the fact that you're leaders in this nation, you're leading so many people astray. What it really means to know God and, and I want you to know It will lead to your ruin You see that what the text says it Says why, why, should you, why should you ruin yourself So he says One of the errors that God's wisdom of Causes you to avoid Is to go into legalism And people do it because I mean life seems out of control And God's not working the way we want And I want you to know some denominations Specialize in legalism on the other hand, there's another error on the opposite end of the spectrum. you find that in verse 17, and that is licentiousness, the idea that you just lack uh, moral discernment and restraints, you disregard them. You act as if God doesn't really care how you live. And some people say, well, you know it's all of grace and it just doesn't matter how I live. I can do whatever I want and God doesn't care. Actually he says that's an error. Look at verse 17, he says, "And do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool." Why should you die before your time? The idea of living life as if God doesn't care how you behave and just kind of engage in anything because you feel like it, like, oh, it's not like a good idea to me, or you just live your life independent from God, he says, that's, that's foolishness. And there's these two verses here, this is where people get what is called the golden mean. And it has the idea that, well, listen here. What you want to do is you don't want to sin too much, but you don't want to be like you know, like super holy, you know, and overly righteous. You kind of want to just be kind of the middle of the road. So you can kind of float around in these circles over here and over here. Don't do anything like excessively bad, but you really don't want to be like overly spiritual. That, that would be weird and wrong. And so it's called the golden mean. And that is not what these verses are talking about. These verses are warning of the air. And the only way that you and I really fly straight, look at verse 18. He says, it is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. To grasp the fact that sometimes God works in mysterious ways. And you and I have got to be okay with that. There is so much that we cannot understand from our very limited perspective. We don't get verse 15. And we've got to be okay with that because God is in control. He's sovereign and he's good. And his ways are not our ways. The other thing that you don't let go is that there are some errors that you can kind of careen into in this life. And you want to avoid them. And how do you do that? By having a right relationship with God. Look at verse 18. You fear God. It has the idea that you have a reverential awe for God. People that feared God in the Old Testament were those who served him. They enjoyed him. They had an orientation where he was at the center. They feared God. And that is what, how even the book ends. That God's going to bring judgment. And the right thing to do is to learn how to fear God. And this is really the beauty of the gospel of grace. You see, when we understand that relationship with God comes by trusting in the person and the work of Jesus. That he paid the penalty for sins. And he's the one that has been resurrected. He gives genuine spiritual life to those who believe. That'll keep you from the air of like, well, relationship with God is all about rules and regulations. And it'll also keep you from like, well, God doesn't really care about how I live. No, he loves you tremendously and he wants your life to be oriented around him. And the only way that you will do that is if you fly by the instruments of God's wisdom. Many of you will be familiar of the night of July 16th, 1999. John F. Kennedy Jr., his wife, Carolyn, and her sister, Lauren... They all perished in an airplane accident. When it, the uh, flight, the, the plane that John F. Kennedy Jr. was flying, a Piper Saratoga, kind of a light aircraft, there's a picture of, of one of those, it crashed into the ocean. And let me just give you a little background of what took place there. The plan was to depart from, and they did depart from Essex County Airport in Fairfield, New Jersey. And their intended route was to go along the coastline of Connecticut. They were going to cross the Rhode Island Sound, and they were going to land at Martha Vineyard's airport. Well, they left later than expected. They left at 8.39 at night. Uh, They were supposed to leave around 6.30. It was dark. Uh, The other thing is that uh, John F. Kennedy, Jr. was actually a pretty novice pilot, and he was not trained to fly with instruments, And so while he's flying at night, according to the investigation of the National Transportation and Safety Board, they found that Kennedy fell victim of what is called spatial disorientation. Flying at night, not being able to see markers, not to be able to see the horizon, flying over water, and he simply didn't know that his plane was careening into the ocean. And I tell you this, friends... Because if you are trusting just what you can see and what you feel, you're probably heading to disaster. You need to learn to fly by the instruments of God's wisdom that he gives us in the word. And friends, it will guide your heart so that you do not go into some of the dangers of legalism or licentiousness, but you fly straight in the fear of God. See, God's wisdom not only guides our hearts, but let me tell you something else why you and I really need God's wisdom in life. It gives strength to our souls. Beginning in verse 19, he's going to underscore just how important that is. You and I, our souls are made to run on the fuel of God's spirit and his wisdom. It's literally how life is designed, that we function in the realm of seeking, knowing, and living in God's wisdom, and we do so in his strength. And look what he says. Look at verse 19. I put a mark by this. This is such a good verse. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Do you see that? Wisdom strengthens a wise man. We think, man, well, if you really want power, or you want strength, man, it's all about having political power, it's about who you know and how you can influence. And Solomon says, no. You'd be sorely mistaken. A lot of folks think like, well, if you're just influential, you've got a lot of influential people around you. That's where you're going to find true power. That's how you're going to really get through life. Solomon says, no, that's nothing. What you really want is wisdom. You see, wisdom is going to give you the ability to exercise self-control. It's going to help you see possibilities. It's going to show you what to do and how to do it. It literally will strengthen your souls. And you know what? We need that kind of strength. Look at verse 20. Our souls need the strength that God's wisdom provides because of the depravity of humanity. Look what he says in verse 20. He says, indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. I mean, even your mother sins. I know she's godly at all, but I want you to know that everyone has depravity. Uh, Some scholars think that this is the verse that the Apostle Paul was thinking about and citing when he was writing the book of Romans in Romans 310, where he says, there is none righteous, not even one. All of us suffer from depravity. We all sin and sin can be kind of in two major categories. There is the sins of omission, meaning things that you should do. But you don't do it for whatever reason. I don't feel like it or that'd be awkward or, or whatever. And then there are the sins of commission, meaning things that you actually do that are wrong. God says, do this. You do the opposite. You shouldn't do it. This to someone. You shouldn't engage in this activity. You shouldn't be involved in this particular behavior like that. Oh, I really feel like doing it. And you go ahead and do it. And it's wide and spectrum. And he's saying here, you and I need wisdom because we live in a world of depravity. Now, this verse kind of gives us insight of what total depravity looks like. It, it means that you and I are thoroughly corrupt. That we inherited from Adam a condition, a fallen nature. We are prone to sin. We are all automatically kind of antagonistic toward God. You ever notice that with your children? That you never have to train them on how to sin, or how to lie, or how to throw tantrums. I mean, you don't have to train them because, guess what? It is built in. It comes with the packaging they've already got. They know how to do it, and they, they can be excellent at it. And I want you to know that that carries through in all of life. When we talk about depravity and total depravity, it doesn't mean that you're as wicked as you could be. But it does mean that there is evil that resides within There is an antagonism toward God. There is the desire to go your way rather than God's way. And what we need is wisdom. By the way, that verse, verse 20, the reality that all of us sin, it tells us what we really need is a man who doesn't sin. We need someone who's perfect. And that is exactly what God provides in the incarnation in the giving of Jesus Christ. The Son of God, who comes to this earth, lives perfectly, and dies to be the provision for our sins, and is resurrected so we can have life. You see, you and I are going to need wisdom because depravity runs deep, and it's all throughout humanity. And let me show you something else. We're going to need wisdom, according to verses 21 and 22, because of the discouragement of harmful words. Do not be surprised. That the evil in a person's heart is becomes expressed from their mouth. It happens all the time. Take a look at verse 21. And also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. That, the idea of curse here is to revile, to treat with contempt. And what he's saying here is like, hey, Les, don't believe every word of criticism. I mean, some folks seemingly have the gift of criticism. Maybe you know someone like that. Maybe you work with them. I mean, it's kind of like their life mission to always point out three things that are wrong with you and how you're living. Right. And they have ways of doing that. Like, for instance, they can email you some things or they just tell it to you in your face. And if they can't get to you directly. They'll get to you indirectly because after all, there is break rooms. And what are break rooms for? Right. To give you a break? No, man. or work you over. And so they'll start talking about and saying things that are they could be slanderous, could be gossip, but it happens all the time. And when he says, you know, be careful so you don't hear what your servant might be saying about you and he's cursing you. It has the idea that they could be people that, you know, and actually know pretty well. Could be a close friend even or an employee. Or even a former boss. And I'll tell you, the reason that we need wisdom to navigate these waters when people are tearing us up and cursing at us and criticizing us is because this has a way of driving us deep into discouragement, if not into depression, when people are tearing us up. It's It works this way. You start hearing those things, and you and I are our own worst critic. And it just, like, it can send you into one of those graveyard spirals. You've got spatial disorientation. And I know we all face this. If you're a leader, friends, get ready. This is part of the territory. People, especially in this country, feel like they've got a right to tear up leaders at any point. It doesn't matter if what they say is true or not. I'm just mad. I don't like that. I'm unhappy. And so you just let the slander and the libel flow. The gossip goes forth. And you've got to find a way to navigate your way through that. And the only way you will do that successfully is by wisdom. Chuck Swindoll writes this on the subject. I am learning that many of those things that once hurt me are better forgotten. My dad used to say, son, when a mule kicks you... Just consider the source. That's good. When a mule kicks you, just consider the source. Sometimes, he writes, it's nothing more than a mule kicking. They're not much good for anything but plowing and kicking, and they do a lot of both. But since, when is a mule worth worrying over? You've got to find a way to navigate through this critical spirit when you encounter it in others. And I want to say something here. Remember last week when you saw in chapter 7, verse 5, where he extolled how important it is to listen to valid criticism? If you're being rebuked or corrected by a wise person, friends, we need to value that. People that walk with God, have godly wisdom, and see you going in the wrong way or trafficking in evil, and they come and talk with you about that? Friends, those are some of the best friends in life. You need to listen up. You need to pay attention because they care enough about you to tell you the truth. But the folks that are just going kind to of naysayers and they're just they're just mad and they're upset. and They just want to tear your life up. And they know that saying wrong, evil things or slandering your character is a pretty damaging tool. Look what the text says. And he says, don't take it to heart. Just be careful what you're listening to. Don't take seriously all those words. And then just kind of an, in an eloquent twist of the sword. Look at verse 22. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. Ooh. When you're getting punched, you're taking a few verbal missiles. Someone's shooting at you and they've actually hit you. Just remember this. Sometimes you've been on the other end of that stick. You're the ones that have dished it out. And so what we need is wisdom. And what wisdom gives us is that rare objectivity to life so that we have a rare stability on how we handle some of the difficulties, like difficulties of these discouraging words, words that are spoken against you. Charles Spurgeon, a famous pastor from England, uh, he had a pastor's college where he was training pastors. And every Friday afternoon, he would give a lecture to all the Pastors and these guys that are training for the ministry. And these lectures were recorded and what they did is they turned them into books. They sold those books and then those books, the proceeds from them, in a large part funded this college, this pastor's college. One of his famous lectures they gave one Friday afternoon was titled A Blind Eye and a Deaf Ear. And this is what he said. You cannot stop people's tongues. Therefore, the best thing to do is to stop your own ears and never mind what is spoken. And what he encouraged is that all of you need to have one blind eye and one deaf ear. And this is how he ended the lecture. He said, I have one blind eye and one deaf ear, and it's the best eye and best ear that I have. Sometimes you just need to like, nah. I'm not going to let the naysayers and those who are just trying to pick me apart, I'm not going to let them have effect on my soul. And the only way you get through that is wisdom. How do you react? How do you handle it? Well, this is your text. And I want to just throw one more thing out there. If you're in a situation like a break room or family gathering or in your small group or, or wherever, and, and someone starts gossiping about another person or slandering them, saying things that are not true or going after their character, would you care enough to say, hey, just just wait a second here. You know what? I think we should probably stop because I don't think that this is going to be helpful for the health of our family or for our small group or for our team or for our company or for our church. Very interesting. Very few people care enough about their family or their team or their business or their small group or their church to say, wait, you know what? That's wrong. We should stop and redirect the conversation. But friends, that's what's needed. You see, what we need is wisdom. And that's what God provides. And our, so- our souls need wisdom not only for direction, but for strength. Because God provides strength. That- So we can deal with the depravity of humanity so we can handle the discouragement of harmful words. And so that we can notice verses 23 and following so that we can walk through and face off with the deceitfulness of sin. Look at this beginning in verse 23. Solomon said, I've tested I've put to the test. All this with wisdom. And I said, I will be wise. But you know what? It was far from me. Verse 24 what has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? You see, like he's trying to plumb the depths of God's wisdom and, and his character and how he functions. And he says, I couldn't discover it. I, I did everything I could. In fact, he says, verse 25, I directed my mind to know, to investigate and to seek. You see these imperatives, I mean, these, these infinitives where he's like, I, I tried so hard to understand all these things. And an explanation to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. Why are these things the way they are? And yet, he couldn't figure it out. But there is one thing that he discovered, and I don't want you to miss this. What he discovered is verse 26. And I discovered more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets. Whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her. But the sinner will not be captured by her. You and I are not going to actually figure everything out about God. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He's God. We're not. But he did say this. In my quest to understand. Especially foolishness and madness. And why these things are the way they are. I discovered this. That there is madam folly that is seeking to deceive individuals. Notice the words he used in verse 26. Snares, nets. Who is this woman? Uh, Is she the prostitute? That this strange woman that is inviting people to come into her wayward ways. And if that's the case, you want to steer far away from her. But I really think that this is Madam Folly. You find her on full display in Proverbs chapters uh, 1 through 9. In fact, chapters 9, you see Madam Folly juxtaposed to Lady Wisdom. Wisdom is personified as this woman of beauty and grace. But Madam Folly is this woman who is calling after, soliciting, trying to entice and entrap Anybody, the simple, the naive, to get you slipped up. And how she works, she works with nets and snares. It's like bait in a trap. You're like, oh, that would oh, be so good. And you just get fixated on that. You step in there, and it closes down on you. Friends, it'll take your life in places you never wanted it to go. And Solomon said this, I have discovered the deceitfulness of Sin. And the only way that you and I will navigate through those kind of waters is if we're walking by the instruments and flying by the instruments of God's wisdom. And so he says, but you know what? It's rare to find anyone that's not been completely deceived by sin. Look at verses 27 and following. He says, but I've discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation Which I am still seeking, but I have not found. I have found one man among among a thousand, but I've not found a woman among all these. Behold, I have found only this, that God has made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. And what he's using here is kind of like a poetic statement. He's using hyperbole saying, listen, maybe I found one guy in a thousand. I haven't found any women. It's like he's saying, listen, there's no one. There's no one that hasn't been deceived by sin. In fact, he says in verse 29, I've only found this. God has made men upright, Adam and Eve. But they have sought out many devices, the fallenness of sin. And isn't that life? How many people are just trying to make life work apart from God? They've got their own system of beliefs, their own system of ethics. Whether it aligns with God or not doesn't matter to them. They'll engage in whatever behavior that they want. They'll have wickedness on display, and you better like it. And he says, all I have found is that God made people upright. He's literally set eternity in their hearts, according to Ecclesiastes 3.11, but they've sought out all these devices. Depravity runs deep, and dis- sin is deceitful, and what we need is the gospel. And that's why God has given us Christ. You see, in Christ, we not only have forgiveness, but in Christ... God gives us wisdom. But I want you to know something. It's one thing to be aware of wisdom. It's another thing to apply it. There's a lot of folks that, yeah, I, I know what the wise thing to do here. You can stop me. Think about it. I know the right thing to do. In fact, I can give you a Bible verse on why I should do this. But it's a whole other thing to apply it. You've got to connect your life with God and with wisdom. Several weeks ago, my family and I, we have been invited to go to a wedding in Mississippi at a camp up there, and so uh, got it all worked out. I, I drive high-mileage vehicles, so our van's got about 190,000 miles on it, so I took it to the shop because I, I wanted to make sure it wasn't going to break down on me with my family and, and a family friend. So all six of us plus uh, one of our family friends were all going to be packed in this van. So I took it to the shop. I'm on a very first name basis. I've got cell numbers for them. They know me. It's my most expensive friendship in town. And I said, Listen, I want you to just look over this van because I don't want to be making some memories on the side of the road, if you know what I mean. They looked it over and I said, Yeah, you're in good shape. And so I'm feeling pretty good about it. And we're making our way. We're we get into Jackson, Mississippi, and we stop for supper there and everybody goes in the restaurant. We come out and you know it's about eight o'clock at night. And we all get in the van, you know, but you know, something's not right. Like, there's no interior lights in the van. Like, wait a second here. I try to turn it over, and it's nothing. Okay, so like, whole gang's in there. I mean, this van is packed out with all luggage, all my kids. And I, I'm stalled out here. There's a truck in front of me, and I see a guy sitting there. I'm like, oh, all right, I've done this before. I get my jumper cables out. And I say, hey, do you mind if we just jump my van here and try to get to a wedding here? And so he tries to help me out. And I tell you, I'm looking at the cables, I attach uh dumper cables, nothing happens. I well, thanks, you know, and so he goes off and, and it's me and my van load of kids and a friend, and I'm like, what do I do? Like, God help me. Why do these things always happen to me? Okay, I don't they probably don't happen to you, but this is kind of routine, and I'm like, what am I gonna do now? So I get it I, I everybody's in the van, I get back in the driver's seat and I shut the door. And the lights blink on. I'm like, okay, now I'm a believer in the power of prayer, but I'm like, wait a second here, wait, wait. The vent, not. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna try to start it, and I do. It it turns over. I'm looking at Karina. And I'm like, and I'm trying to figure out what is going on. I'm like, this is, maybe it's a fuse issue, electrical issue. So like, we're looking up. There's a Firestone place. I get there. They're at, they're just closing, and the mechanic's gone. You could come back tomorrow morning. Oh great. Okay, tomorrow morning. That, that's not gonna work. I'm thinking it's got to be a fuse issue. So I'm going to go to some automotive stores and we're driving in some pretty difficult places in Jackson, Mississippi. I, one of these, I go to an auto zone. I've never seen this before. And there was a security guard meets me there. And I'm like, whoa, and my wife is feeling a little nervous here. And I'm like, I'm trying to fix our van. I don't even know what's wrong with it. And so I said, hey, do you know what if I just turn it off and on? I just want to make sure that And it, it works fine. I'm like, kids, we're gassing this baby up and we're going to drive to the camp. Okay, we're just going to get there. You might call that foolish, but I'm like, I was going to go with it. So we did. We get to the camp late at night. It's in the middle of um, this forest in Mississippi. I, I pull into kind of the driveway and I turn it off to find out where we're supposed to stay the night. And uh, when I go to get back in, guess what? Everything's dead again. Like, no, my kids are laughing hysterically, which isn't helpful. I can't. Nothing works. I'm like, what is going on? So a friend of mine comes out and we're, we look. I pop the hood open and... I pulled the positive battery cover off, and the whole cable comes off. I'm like, ah, oh, this is the problem. You see, when it was connected, maybe when I shut the door, it was just enough to have it connect, but it worked. But when the battery cable was not connected with the battery, everything was dead. And I tell you, that's a lot like wisdom. When you are connected with God, you are following the instruments... Life works. And when it's not connected and you're doing your own thing, you're just like dead in the water. And your friends, I want you to see, though, when you're connected with wisdom, look at chapter 8, verse 1. It's like your wisdom transforms your life. Who is like the wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. It literally brings transformation. You see, God's wisdom guides us. It gives us uh, the ability to have healthy relationships, what to do with our money, how to direct our heart, establishing our priorities. And if you want wisdom, let me just tell you, you want to heed and read God's word. And you want to be in a church that teaches the Bible. You also, if you want wisdom, you want to learn how to pray and ask God for wisdom. And third, you want to have some friends that are actually wise. They have godly wisdom. It is a way to help you figure out the path of where you're to go. There's a guy by the name of George Washington Carver, a very famous uh, agricultural chemist and scientist. Um, he also uh, really was well known for just his devout faith, a very strong Christian, a man of deep spiritual fervor. George Washington Carver was born into slavery, and yet he accomplished so much. Most of his scientific work was revolved around the work with the peanut. And uh, now you're thinking, like, well, what can you do with a peanut? Well, he discovered that there were over 100 products that he developed from the peanut, including dyes, plastics and gasoline. This guy was so brilliant that the U.S. Senate had a committee that brought him in to testify and to talk about what he had learned and how he figured this out, because this could have major implications for agriculture and our economy. And so before the Senate in January of 1921, uh, a senator asked, Dr. Carver, how did you learn all these things? And he said, from an old book. And they're like, huh, what book was that? And he said, the Bible. And the these senators are looking at each other. And one of the senators asked, does the Bible talk about peanuts? And Dr. Carver said, no, Mr. Senator. But it tells me about God who made the peanut. And I asked him to show me what to do with the peanut. And he did. Friends, that's what wisdom does. God will give you guidance and strength. And when you're fly, flying through the difficulties of life and the challenges and you're not sure what ends up and what ends down, friends, fly by the instruments of God's wisdom. And they are found in Christ, like it says in Colossians 2, 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The question is, will you go to him and seek out wisdom from him? And so, like he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it's for by his doing that you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So, friends, in life, fly by the instruments of God's wisdom for the wisdom of God will guide your heart and it will strengthen your soul. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for an amazing passage of Scripture. You have given us truth You extol the virtues of your wisdom to bring guidance and strength in this life. And Lord, for someone who has come here today who's never truly trusted Christ, would they just pray with me now as you've got their full attention and say, Lord, I turn from myself and my own sin. And this morning I believe in Christ for forgiveness and for wisdom. Lead me, Lord, for I need you. Lord, for all of us, May we walk in your ways. May we be seeking your face. May Christ be at the center of how we live and how we think. And would you give us guidance from your wisdom and strength for your glory. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.